Men, this is the word of the Lord. I desire in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Men, I'd like to see those holy hands raised, and I would ask you to pray silently or vocally for your family, for the church, whatever you want to pray, whatever the Holy Spirit leads as I lead us again in prayer. Holy Spirit, we thank you that we get to come to you. God, help us now as we pray for this time together. We ask that you would uh, speak clearly as I get to preach your word. I pray that you'd help us to understand, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, give us hearts that are open to receive the word that you have for us. We thank you for our families. We thank you for this church. We just ask that you'd move powerfully in this city and in this state. Lord, lead us. We trust that you're going to. I thank you for these men who are willing to publicly out themselves as men who follow you, who want to honor you, who want to lead their families well, who want to follow you no matter what the cost. I thank you that we get to raise holy hands and pray to you. God, I pray that our hands would be holy. I pray that if there's any sins that we need to repent of, that you'd help us to repent of those. Help us to change. Help us to be the men that you've called us to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 8 through 20 today. We have been talking a lot about justification by faith. If you're going along in your Bible reading challenge, you just recently read through the book of James, and I am going to at some point touch on James chapter 2 and show how these books are not at odds with each other. These letters are complementary. They're not contradictory, which is very important. I talked to a couple people this week about that. Thank you for those conversations. We've been talking about by justification by faith, and today... We're going to see that there is a temptation after being justified by faith. It's a very real temptation. There is a temptation in the human heart to drift back to slavery to the law. Salvation by law is a very seductive message. It's the drift of mankind, and unfortunately, even in the Christian life, in different seasons of life, even by those who are filled with the Holy Spirit... There is a temptation to be seduced back to justification by way of law. What I mean, once you have experienced freedom in Christ, it's entirely possible to drift back into trusting in the law of God instead of trusting in Christ. And what we see today is the sad reality of a group of people who prefer to live lives of slavery to the law rather than lives of sonship before their heavenly father. And so I want to learn from their mistakes today. We're going to see that trusting in our own works of the law rather than the finished work of Jesus is really, really foolish, but all too often common. Turn your eyes to verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that were by nature not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years? I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. See, before Christ, the Galatians, we saw last week, were slaves to the things that were by nature not God's. They were walking in paganism, they were walking in the trust of the law, they were walking and following the prince of the power of the air, and they were actually enslaved, enslaved in every way that you could possibly be enslaved. 
And they needed God to do something. We saw that God, in fact, did something. They were enslaved to the law and to false gods, and they were trapped. But now they have come to know God and be known by God. Those are two very important statements. The Galatian churches and those little communities had come to the point they didn't know God, and then they came to the point that they did know God, and then more importantly, they came to the point that they were known by God. These are two amazing statements. It says it clearly, but now that you have come to know God... So before they were enslaved, now they've come to know God. And then the second part of verse 9, or rather to be known by God. They know God and are known by God. And this is a truth that's true for every single believer in Christ across cities and states and nations and across generations. That if you are a Christian, then you know the God of the universe. And, more importantly, you are known by the God of the universe. You know, it's, it's interesting, in our life over the years, you get to meet certain people that you really appreciate, or that you like, or that you've looked up to in your life, and you remember the times that you've met somebody. Maybe you've met somebody famous before, or maybe you've met somebody that you've really respected or appreciated, like a preacher or an author that you really looked up to before, and you got to meet that person and you remembered, or maybe in your you know, library at home you've got some books on the shelf, and you've got an autograph from that book, or you've got a baseball card or a basketball, you guys get the point. You got to meet somebody and you remembered that meeting before, because meeting somebody important or significant of your life is very, in your life, is very, very memorable. And you know, you got to go around the room and if you just say, if you kind of name drop and everybody's name drop, dropping, I've met this person, I've met that person, well that's cool, I've met this person and that person. And probably in this room we've, you know, the collection of people here probably met some, some pretty famous people. And then somebody steps up and, and, and they start to talk and they say, I know God. I know the God of the universe, the maker of all things. I know the God that spoke this universe into being. We learned this week in, in uh, homeschool that there is a star named Beetlejuice. Anybody know about Beetlejuice in here? Okay. How many times larger is Beetlejuice than our sun? Many times. How many times? You know, Brett? Really? Okay, so massive. What, what was the number that you heard? Was it a 600 times the size of the sun, Beetlejuice? It's pretty amazing. Okay, I know the God that said Beetlejuice, and Beetlejuice showed up. I know that guy, the God of the universe. Anybody want to top that? And all the Christians in here are like, yeah, me too, I do too, which is wonderful. But this is, you know, you've, everybody has met a one-upper in their life. You've met a one-upper. You tell a story that's just completely outlandish and crazy, and everybody's just jaws dropping, and it's an amazing thing that that happened. And then somebody come, comes around the corner, they've kind of been listening in, and they just kind of like, like, man, that is nothing. That story is puny compared to my story. And, and here's how it is. Everybody in this room and all the Galatians needed to remember that you know the God of the universe. Like the, the famous people that you have met, they are puny on the scale. You know God. You have come to know God, and that is an amazing thing. But that second statement is even more amazing because it's like the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's like he's saying, okay, you've come to know God, but wait, let, let me say it even better. You have come to be known by God, or rather, to be known by God. You know, why is that such an amazing thing, that we are known by God? The Christian world, in some way or another, is unknown by the God of the universe, it is a pursuit of so many. That's why we live in a, an affirmation culture. 
And if, if affirmation is what you want, by the way, affirmation is the, the road that, that's paved to hell. The road to hell is paved with affirmation. We live in an affirmation-hungry society and world. And it's a world that wants to be affirmed for who they are. They want to be known, and then they want everybody around them to say, not only do I know you, but everything you do and everything that you are is awesome and amazing. But we know the God of the universe who knew everything that we were that wasn't awesome and amazing. And he would not affirm us in that. He loved us too much for that. You see, one of the amazing and offensive things about Jesus is that Jesus forgives sins and Satan affirms sins. Satan and his minions and the world and the flesh, the world of flesh and the devil working in cahoots to affirm sin. And Jesus comes along and he is the forgiver of sins. And this is a great offense to the world because if you are to be forgiven of sins, it means that you've actually sinned. It means that you've actually done something that warrants the need for forgiveness of sins. And that message the world cannot tolerate right now. I want affirmation. Just give me more. Tell me how wonderful I am. Tell me how loved I am. Get all the toxic people out of your life who will not affirm those things about you. And yet God knows everything about you. And he did not stiff arm you or push you away. God came near and Jesus came for you even though he knew every single sin about you. Every single treasonous thing that you had done to God. Everything that you would ever do against him. Every violation of the law. And yet Jesus still, knowing everything about you, came to you and is not ashamed to be called your brother. And Paul's reminding them, you have been known by God. You are fully known and God still loves you even though he fully knows you. He has brought you into his family. He has forgiven your sins and casted them as far as the east is from the west. And you are known by God. You put these two statements together. The, the church at Galatia is a, is a group of people who had moved from slavery into sonship. And they knew God and they were fully known by God and fully loved by God. This is an amazing position of privilege Privilege only given by God, not privileged attained by people. That's an important distinction. This is a privilege given by God, not attained by people. Nobody in this room can come to us or anybody else and say, I'm a child of God because I did this or that, or I jumped through that hoop or through that hoop, or I dotted that I and crossed that T and I made, myself, I made my way into the kingdom of God. No, we are at the mercy of God, and God has brought us into this place of privilege of being known by God, fully known and fully loved. God knows us. He made us his own. He knows everything about you. And a non-Christian, if you're a non-Christian in this room, fundamentally, fundamentally, you remain in this place that's not fully known. And it's not that God doesn't know you exist. That's not that God doesn't know everything about you. But this place of being fully known and fully loved is a position that only Christians can claim. I know God and I am known by God. And a non-Christian cannot say that statement. They cannot say, I know God and I am known by God. And Paul's reminding them of truths that are there for sons and daughters of the living God. You are known and loved. And Paul wants them to see how special that is before he contrasts that with what they've embraced. 
Here's what you have, church. It's yours. It's in your possession. And here's what you're trading it for. Like you're, you're throwing it to the side and you begin to run again to where these false teachers are telling you to run. And you're casting away such a wonderful privilege. Look at verse 9b. We'll start at verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, there's your position. There, there's what's true about you. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. You are known by God. That's where you are, known. You know God. Why in the world then would you go back to slavery? Don't go back to that slavery you once lived in, church. It may be familiar. Old habits die hard. Patterns of living are hard to break, even after you're a believer. You know, have you ever wondered why, for some Christians, they become a Christian, and it really is a drugs-to-Jesus story, where temptations are gone, the temptations for particular sins, not all temptation, but temptations or habits that were once there, immediately they're gone, they're broken. I just snapped and made no noise. It was like completely silent snap. The, the temptations for those particular sins, they're gone. And that's real. They're not making that up. They're not trying to make a super spiritual statement. And then for others, they become a Christian, they're really born again, and breaking of those habits take a decade. They take... 15 years, they take a long time, and you're still a new creation, and there's other things in your life that are completely new, the old is gone, the new has come, but there's still some of those habits and temptations that still are a struggle for you. And I don't know why it's not the exact same for every Christian. But now, here they are, even though old habits die hard, they're trading their sonship, and they are not just struggling with these sins, they're beginning to embrace slavery by way of the law or trusting in the law that's what the false teachers were leading them into the false teachers were leading them them into this if you're if you really want to be justified if you really want to be right with god it's not something that's true about you it's the pursuit of your life if you really want to be justified justification is still out there and maybe one day if you jump through hoops like Days, months, seasons, and years, if you keep the law of God, then maybe, just maybe, the aim of your life will end at justification. And that sounded right. It sounded good. They're still using and invoking the name of Jesus. These false teachers weren't outright saying, Jesus is not God. They weren't outright saying, you don't need Jesus. They were saying, you need Jesus, but then you have to, if you're really going to be justified, you can't be sure that you're justified. If you really want to be justified, you have to do these things. And this is an age-old message. It's something that we have all probably, in seasons of our Christian life, walked in this sort of bondage, measuring your relationship with the Lord based on the hoops that you are jumping through. And so experientially, how you're experiencing your walk with the Lord, experientially, it's always this barometer. It's always this up and down. Because you're not fixed on that point of justification. You're turning to this idea that justification is maybe out there, and God may or may not be happy with me. I've got to jump through some more hoops. I've got to observe this season. I've got to observe this day. I've got to observe this law. And then maybe, just maybe, I'll feel better about my relationship with God. Experientially, we've probably 
all been there. You know, there's a question that rises up. Is there anything wrong inherently with observing a special day, month, season, or year? Is there anything wrong with celebrating, for instance, the Jewish festivals as a remembrance of what Christ has done or a pointer to what Christ has done? And I think we can resoundingly enjoy Christmas and say there's nothing wrong with enjoying Christmas. There's nothing, nothing wrong with enjoying a Seder meal. There's nothing wrong with enjoying a day or a season and saying, I'm going to take a season to think about what Christ has done for me. So what could possibly be wrong with that? What's wrong with the days, seasons, months, or years that they were observing? What's wrong with it is that they were trusting in their observances and coming under the bondage of that rather than walking in the freedom of sonship. That's the whole problem. That's why Paul laments, I'm afraid that I've labored over you in vain. You're observing these days, months, seasons, and years? Are you kidding? Why do you want to welcome upon you the worthless elementary principles of the world again? Do you want to be slaves again? Do you want to go back to Egypt? The three Keith Green fans knew that song. I'm going to quote that later, by the way. Friends, this is experientially something that we've all been tempted to walk in. Walk in. And if they kept going in the direction that they were going, Paul's concerned. It's like, I, I, I have done my work and labor, and it feels like it's completely in vain because you're not understanding who you are positionally. And more importantly, you're not understanding whose you are. You're welcoming back in what these false state teachers are bringing. This must have felt to them, I think, as they're receiving this letter and the Holy Spirit is working and they're, they're passing this to the churches of Derby and Lystra and Antioch of Iconium and, and this letter circulating and they're reading this part and it had to feel like just holy sandpaper rubbing some things in their life spiritually and it, it's just, oh man, this is, this, is, this is cutting to the core. What have we invited in? What have we tolerated Verse 12, Paul continues his argument. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. Paul appeals to how he has become. Now, if you remember about the Apostle Paul, or if you're new to Christianity and you don't know about the Apostle Paul, or if you're new to just thinking about, about Christianity or not a Christian, well, the Apostle Paul was a Jewish leader who was trained by Gamaliel, or Gamaliel, and he was a higher-up of the Pharisees, a Pharisee of all Pharisees. At one point he called himself that he was a strict adherence to the law. I mean, it was always adherence to the law. He wanted to obey what God said, and he did it with zeal. He was the Jew of all Jews, and Paul said that he became as they are. He became freed from trusting in the law and was walking as a child of God and he was living as a Gentile believer. He was not trusting in the observances of these, of these feasts, festovers or rituals or ceremonial laws. He was trusting in Christ. He became as they are, as they once started. And now his appeal to them is now, now become as I am, because he has become as 
they were. Now, what does that mean? And he tells them that you did me no wrong. Well, what, the, what were they to them? What did they do for him? That's a good question. What did they do if they did him no wrong? Paul is saying, I became as you are, or you become as I am because I became as you are, and you did me no wrong, and so what I mean is I'm not doing your wrong, you wrong. Okay, you became as I am, become as I am, I became as you are, you did me no wrong. So what he is saying is, I am not doing you wrong right now. And then he's going to say what the church of Galatia did for him, and how they welcomed him, how they took care of him, how they would have given their very eyes, gouged them out. You're like, man, that's bloody. You'll see in a second what, what we're talking about. But he's saying, you cared for me well, and that's what I'm doing for you now. I'm becoming like you. I'm caring for you like you carried cared for me. Look at verse 12b. For also I become as you are. Excuse me. Uh, they did him no wrong. This, this, okay, so Paul is caring for them. So I want you to consider what the Galatians did for Paul. Look at verse 13. You know it was because of a body ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. But you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? This is how they took care of Paul. Paul had a bodily ailment. This is why we think the bodily ailment of Paul or even the thorn in the flesh from Paul could have been an eye problem, possibly from his walk to Damascus when he was blinded and then he received back his sight. Paul had some sort of, we think, eye ailment. And what he is saying is that this ailment was not a burden to you. In fact, you took care of me. You loved me well to the point that you were willing to physically sacrifice, if you could have. You would have taken an eye out and given me an eye. You would have given me your very kidney. You would have done whatever it took for me to be well. That's how you treated me. Now, God used Paul's ailment to bring the gospel to these people, and they did not use this ailment against them. Now, quick sidebar. Ailments that you may have in your life, it is right and okay for God, for you to pray for God to take those away. Paul did. But I want you to know that the ailments that you may or may not have or you may have in the future, they are not purposeless in the sense that nothing good can come from them. Paul says that it was because of his very ailment that he preached the gospel to the church in Galatia. God truly uses our weaknesses, uses even our infirmities, and he may bring healing to you from them, but in the process we can have great hope that our pain is not purposeless. You know, if our pain and the difficulties that we experience in this life are all arbitrary, if there's no purpose to it, if there's no meaning to it, it's almost like it's the book of Ecclesiastes. It, it adds, it's vanity upon vanities. Well, then why in the world am I going through it? Why, if there's no point to this, if there's nothing good that's going to come from this, how can I possibly bear the difficulty of knowing that this is simply meaningless? And as a quick sidebar, I think it's important for you to see that Paul's ailment is somehow or another connected to his preaching the gospel to the Galatians. And so for Paul, I think he would willingly say, if I get to see people saved, I'll take a physical ailment. If I get to see people come to Jesus and become 
uh, turn from being enemies of God to friends of God, and it's just this ailment, then by all means, it's worth it. And friends, don't waste your difficulties because God is doing something with them and through you in it. And so even though Paul had this condition and it was a trial for them and it inconvenienced them in some way, they did not mistreat him, they took care of him, they loved him, they received him as they would receive Jesus Christ. It's a big statement. For you, you receive me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. That's how they received him and took care of him. It's like Jesus was walking in and how they would take care of Jesus. That's how they were taking care of Paul. They really loved and took care of the Apostle Paul. And Paul is saying, that's what I'm doing for you. They cared for him so much that they would have even taken out their eyes to help the ailment go away. And Paul is just pleading, guys, you took care of me. I'm now becoming as you were. I'm telling you the truth. I am not your enemy Don't treat me like your enemy when I am living for your good. I'm here to take care of you like you took care of me. He's building his case for them to trust him. He loves them like they loved him. Look at verse 17. But the false teachers, the false teachers did not want the church at Galatia to believe that Paul had their best entrance in mind. And over and over again, they're trying to chip away at the authority of the apostle Paul And chip away at his love and benevolence towards them so they would turn on him. And that's what Paul addresses starting in verse 17. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. This is what false teachers always do. And if you can identify this right here in the teaching that you hear and the things that you listen to that come into your ears. And if you can identify this, you can identify false teaching almost every single time. Who is being made much of? You or God? False teachers are wanting to make much of you. We're going to see the right way to do that here in just a minute. And they're doing it for no good purpose. They had infiltrated the church. And it's like the message has turned from the glory of God seen in the face of Christ Jesus. To phrases or statements like this. You've got this. You can do this. You have the ability to keep God's law. Jesus needs your help if you want to be saved. You have no idea how powerful you really are. You are amazing. Mantras that will preach, that'll preach. Not really, they really won't preach. But they're phrases that can get people excited and revved up and ready to go. But it's making much of them. It's not making much of the grace of God. It's disconnected from the grace of God. And the false teachers were elevating the glory of the people and devaluing the glory of Jesus. They were minimizing the importance of the work of Christ and elevating the importance of the work of man. Devaluing Christ's obedience, elevating human obedience. They were calling more attention to the work of people than the work of God. And so what was so diabolical about it? They were doing that 
so that the people who were listening would make much of them. Look what it says. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out. That shuts you out of the kingdom. They don't want you to have any share of Christ. They want to shut you out that you might make much of them. That's what false teachers live off of. The praises of people. Make me think I'm something special. Tell me that I've got something they've never heard before. And if you hear a preacher say, I've, I've got a passage, and most likely you've never heard it preached like that, it's probably because they're not preaching it rightly. Like the goal of good pastoral ministry and preaching is to say what every other good preacher has ever said in the history of the world. Be just like them. You want to be as much as you can, fall in line with the historic Christian faith to say, thus saith the Lord. Here's what God has to say, and you want to be as faithful as you possibly can be to say what God has to say. You don't need to be innovative. And what was so diabolical is they wanted them shut out of Christianity. They didn't care for their souls. They just wanted their praises. They wanted retweets. They wanted to hear, yeah, that will preach. They wanted to hear amens. They wanted to hear that it's all about them. They wanted them to walk away from the Apostle Paul, walk away from Christ, and to follow them. They wanted to shut them out of the message that Paul is preaching. The true message, the true gospel. The false teachers knew exactly what they were doing. They wanted the followers to come behind them, to leave Paul, to leave Jesus, and walk with them. That's what they wanted. They reveled in the thought of those churches not listening to the Apostle Paul. They loved it. They wanted them to follow them. They wanted glory. They did not want to give glory. But then Paul turns the corner here and says there actually is a way to do this that's right. Verse 18, it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children. We'll look at the rest of 19 here in a second. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. So they are making much of them for a bad purpose, for no good purpose. But it's good to be made much of for a good purpose. Well, how do you make much of somebody for a good purpose, Paul? Great question, everybody. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8 through 15, follows a, a really great pattern that you see with the Apostle Paul. Christian encouragement is a very hard thing. Non-Christian encouragement is as easy as an attaboy. Way to go. You know, it's, it's a plan. I still don't get this, but for some reason for guys, it's okay to slap each other's butts when you're playing sports. I don't know why. It's like the only place in the world that that's okay. You know what I mean? Like, way to go, Bob, you know. It, it works somewhere by the water hole, and Bob is never talking to you again. Or he's talking to you a lot, and you need to run. And so, <laughs> thanks, Ryan Deaton's over there. <laughs> uh. <laughs> so, so anyways... They want to make much of you, but there's got to be a way, apparently, of making much of somebody in the right, good, and true way. That's more than just an attaboy. That's more, more than, you go, girl, or you're amazing, or you're worthy, or you're awesome. 
that kind of stuff. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8 through, uh, verse 8 through, or chapter 8, verse 1 through 5, is a really good pattern. And you can see this, like even in just the book of 1 Corinthians, where God, just in chapter 1, will, he, he will say, I thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you. And he connects his thankfulness or what's going on within that church that's amazing or awesome. He connects the making much of them with the grace of God. And the way he encourages them is by saying, God is at work in you. The grace of God is evident among you. Praise God. I see God at work through you. And that is a massive difference between saying God's at work in you and be encouraged, brother. Be encouraged, sister. You're doing well. That is a big difference between saying you're awesome, you're amazing, and saying nothing about the work of God. Now look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 through 5. I'll just read it really quickly. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, and as I can testify, beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this is not as we expected, but and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Paul is making much of the church of Macedonia. He's putting them on a pedestal and saying, this, this is awesome. This is what's going on in the church of Macedonia. And he's using that as an example to the church in Corinth. But if you'll notice, it's not stopping with the church in Macedonia. The whole thing starts with, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. You see, in true Christian encouragement, it always or it should always leave the person who's just been encouraged walking away thinking, God, thank you for your grace. You are so kind to me that you're not leaving me alone. Thank you that I'm not doing what I'm doing or following your commands by my own strength or my own abilities. Thank you that you are working through me and that I'm not alone. Thank you that you didn't just tell me to get to work and smack me on the butt and say, go for it, and then leave me alone. Holy Spirit, thank you for working through me and connecting what's going on within the person or within the church with the grace of God is what Paul is always doing. Recognize it. You'll see it. Look at the beginning of each letter, and as he's talking to the churches, it's almost always that he's connecting it to the grace of God. This is what it means to be made much of. The grace of God is working through you. And it's always good to do that. When we make much of a fellow believer in the right way, we're acknowledging the work of God in a person. And that is good and godly encouragement. When we see God at work, we should be quick to call it out. Brother, sister, God is at work in your life. And I just I see joy on your face. I see you working hard, man. I see you really putting in extra hours doing what you got to do for this season and and man, God is at work through you, and I see you doing that, and it's, it's it, with joy, and you're not walking around looking like you hate your family or something. Way to go, brother. Way to go. God's at work in your life. And Paul says this, it is good, not just when he's there, but it's good all the time. Continuing verse, the thought from verse 18 into verse 19. It's always good to be made much of for a good pur purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am, I am in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul is in anguish. And it's not only good to be made up much of when he's present, but also when he is away. 
And he's in anguish. Anguish with the pain of childbirth until Christ is formed in them. Now notice, I want you to see the connection to this with care. The word care. They cared for him. Paul's continuing this argument and saying, I care for you. I love you. I'm not doing you ill. I'm not doing you harm as I speak to you this way. I am in the very anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. This is how much I care about you, church. I want to see Christ formed inside of you and shape you and change you. He calls them my little children. He is so distraught over what they have been duped by that he can only compare it with the anguish of childbirth. That's all he could think of. There's a lot of other things that are painful, but this is the anguish I feel for you as I hear that you're walking in the path of these false teachers and that you're welcoming the bondage of being justified by the law again. You're, you're, you're carrying it with you on your shoulders and not walking in the freedom of Christ. And it's agonizing to me. I want to see Christ formed in you. That's his aim. That is the aim or should be the aim of every single pastor for himself and for the church. For Christ to be formed in me personally and every pastor personally and to see Christ formed in his people. That's what Paul wanted. If Christ is formed in the church of Galatia, they would have kicked these false teachers out and not let them speak another word. Get out. Get out now. If you're here bringing that false gospel of justification by law again, you're not allowed in this home anymore. Don't come in here with that nonsense. That's what they should have done. If Christ was formed in them, they would have not put up with a false gospel. They wouldn't have been seduced. And so Paul is in agony over it. Please, walk in the freedom of sonship. That's yours. Don't willingly walk away from that privilege. That's how much I care about you. He wants to see Christ formed in him. When that happens... When Christ is formed in a group of people, you have a group of free people, free people, obeying God not by coercion, but obeying God primarily because they get to obey God, not because they have to obey God. I get to obey my king. I get to walk with him. I get to fight the flesh. I get to come out of my house every single day and say, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. I get to live as a child of the God of the universe today. When Christ is formed in people, the aim of their life is one of joyful obedience to God because they get to obey Him, because they are a son. When Christ is formed in a group of people, the aim of their life, hear me say this, is not what the false teachers say. The aim of their life is not justification. A Christian never works a single day in his life to be justified. Because that's the foundation of our life. We've been talking about this over and over again. We are justified. I'm not working to be justified. I am justified. And he wishes he could be there. He says he wishes he could be there to change his tone. Look, I, verse 20, I wish I could be present with you now to change your tone, for I am perplexed about you. I want to be there. I want you to know that I care. I want you to not confuse this tone with lack of care. I love you. But he is confused by them. And he's confused by them for the same reason that Moses 
was confused by the crazy, complaining, grumbling people walking around after seeing their enemies and plundering their enemies and seeing their enemies be destroyed. They started complaining and wanting to go back to Egypt. And Keith Green wrote these words back in 1980 in a song, You Want to Go Back to Egypt. So you want to go back to Egypt where you're warm and secure? You see, there's something about the law that for some people it feels like a fireplace in a cold night. It brings comfort to them in a way it should never bring comfort to them. It's like they cozy up next to the law and trust in the law and they've got their hot cocoa and like we said last week, they've got their pumpkin spice and they're sitting there and they feel cozy and it's familiar and I can judge myself by this law and I know that my standing with God is secure as my obedience to this law. And Paul's saying that's slavery. That's wanting to go back to Egypt. So you want to go back to Egypt where it's warm and secure. You're sorry you brought, you, you're sorry that you bought a one-way ticket when you thought that you were sure. You wanted to live in the land of promise, but now it's getting so hard. Are you sorry you're out here in the desert instead of your own backyard? Oh, Egypt. My own place, man. The food in Egypt, oh, so much better than this manna. Eating leeks and onions by the Nile, oh, what breath for dining in style. Oh, my life's on the skids building the pyramids. Well, there's nothing to do but travel, and there's a sure lot of travel out here, because it's hard to keep your feet from moving when the sand gets so hot. And in the morning, it's manna hotcakes. We snack on manna all day. And we sure had a winter, a winter last night for dinner, flaming manna souffle. Well, once we once complained for something new to munch, the ground opened up and had some of us for lunch. Oh, such fire and smoke. Can't God even take a joke? Oh, no. So you want to go back to Egypt where your friends wait for you? You can throw a big party and tell the whole gang what they said about you was true. And this Moses acts like a big shot. Who does he think he is? Well, it's true that God works a lot of miracles, but Moses thinks they're all his. Oh, we're having so much trouble now. Why'd he get so mad about that c -c cow, that golden calf? Moses seems rather idle. He just sits around. He just sits around and writes the Bible. Oh, Moses, put down your pen. Oh, wait. Manna again? Manna waffles, manna burgers, manna bagels, filet of manna, manna patties, banana manna bread. Anybody heard that song before? Terry back there. Yes, Vicky back there. You want to go back to Egypt, Church of Galatia? Slavery? Is that what you want, trusting in the law? You really want to put the bondage? You're no, you know God and you're known by God. And the church here in Carbondale, to any church or anybody who would listen to this, do you really want to go back to slavery? Do you really want to live, live as slaves to the law? Or do you want to enjoy the freedom that you have in Christ Jesus? And if you don't know that freedom, hear it from me. You're here today to hear it. If you don't know it, you're here today to hear it. You are under the law and you're in slavery and you're in sin and you cannot get out of it. You're in bondage and you need to be set free. And today may just be your day if you don't know Jesus. To surrender your life to him. To obey him when he commands you to repent. 
and repent of your sins. God, I'm sorry I've lived my own way. And turn to him and step into sonship today. And then never go back to Egypt. Resolve by the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going back to Egypt. It is a one-way ticket. I'm not going to live trying to be justified by the law. I'm going to live as a son of God. Let's pray. Lord, we don't want to go back to Egypt. We don't want to go back to trusting in the law. That's the road back to slavery. We don't want to walk away from grace. We don't want to remain saved and yet not experience sonship. We want to experience freedom that's in Christ. And we don't want to live in the sad reality that so many self-proclaimed Christians live in, functionally living as slaves of the law and not as children of God. God, thank you that you have done for us what we could never do. You have brought us out of death, into life, out of slavery, into freedom. And we do, do not want to walk in slavery anymore. Thank you that we get to obey you. Because we're justified. Holy Spirit, lead us. I trust that you will. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's sing and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit.